Today's scripture passage comes to us from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5, and it's verses 1 through 19. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from near him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and all your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? And he he has actually said to you, Wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please... Let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and uh, it's great to be here worshiping you guys. My name's Harrison. I'm the associate pastor here uh, at Hope Chapel. And um, yeah, glad to be doing this super fun story from the Old Testament. I love this story. Um, before we dive in, uh, in 610 AD, mystic Muhammad in Mecca, Saudi Arabia, had spent 15 years in a cave crying out to Allah. Uh, one of the many gods of his region who was known as the creator, the provider, and the determiner of human events. 
In 610, Muhammad claimed to hear something back from uh, Allah, a commission, an angel in the form of a man telling him to proclaim. Muhammad received from Allah the Quran and claimed the way to Allah was these five things, profession of faith, prayer, alms, fasting, and pilgrimage. And Muhammad proclaimed these things during his lifetime and conquered many regions around uh, his area and died with almost all Arabia under his control. His name is now the most common name in the whole world. Uh, 1.8 billion people subscribe to his God, Allah, and his way of getting to God. So each religion of the world, and there are many of these, has a story like this. I'm wondering if you've ever looked at those and wondered, um, as Christians, do we really exclusively have the one right God? And do we only have the one right way to get to God? What about Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism? Do they really have the wrong God? Have you wondered that in your heart? Have you had trouble answering other people when they've wondered that in their hearts? I certainly have. It's just a fact that in a world with many stories of supposed gods that offer different ways to reach them, it's hard to know if our God is the one true God and our way is the one right way. So we've been doing a series on the whole story of the Bible, as Haven said earlier, uh, called The Greatest Story. And we're focusing on in this knowing the God of the universe as he truly is and having intimacy with him. And that assumes that there is one true God who can be known. We've arrived at, the, arrived at the book of 2 Kings as we go through the story. And it's a time when in Israel it was really hard to see that Israel's God was the one true God. There was a lot of nations around Israel with different gods and a lot of people groups advocating for those gods. Israel was small. And on top of that, Israel's leaders were some of the most corrupt, reprehensible people um, that you would see. And so it was hard if you're an Israelite or someone from the outside to look at Israel and say, yeah, that God must be the true God and his ways must be the right ways. So our passage this morning addresses this directly. And I want to ask two questions as we look at it. First question, what's the right way to get to God? Is there a right way? What's the right way? Second, is the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, is he the one true God? Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, uh, Lord, many of us have wondered these questions that Israelites were wondering this time. And Lord, you know, you see that we have leaders in the Christian church, many of whom have come out in the last six months that are not living your ways. Uh, And it's hard, Lord, to look around and say, are there there any real Christians pursuing you? And, And Lord, are you really the one true God who can heal and redeem um, and so, Lord, if that's us in here, whether we're Christians or, or non, uh, not Christians, Lord, would, would, you, would you speak to us through this passage this morning and uh, affirm who you are to us and help us to get to know you intimately. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question, what's the right way to get to God? So Naaman, uh, this Syrian general, wants to get to God to be healed. But he's a particular kind of person. Uh, He's a very uh, important person, as the passage makes clear, uh, and he has particular assumptions about how he might get to God. So look with me at verse 1 of this passage. If you have a Bible with you, you can look on your phone, um, on your Bible app. Verse 1, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, and this was 
The army of, of Syria was the biggest army in the region. So this was kind of like the U.S. military. Naaman would have been a big deal. Uh, and Naaman was a great man with his master. So his master would have been the king of Syria. And in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So he had won a lot of victories. The narrator makes sure we know that it was actually God who gave those to him. Um, but Naaman was a mighty man of valor. So he's very brave, very powerful guy. But he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl. Now notice here the contrast. You have a new character. She doesn't have a name. She's not a mighty man, not great, but she's characterized as little. And she's not a man at all. She's a, a, a young girl. And this girl's from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So she doesn't even work for Naaman, which would have given her maybe a little status. She works for Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So this little girl here is an exile from Israel, captured by Syria, and it's likely that Naaman's army killed her family and took her as a slave. And here she still wants to help Naaman when she sees him struggle with his leprosy. This little girl has the most important information Naaman needs in his life, and he's so desperate that he listens to her and he agrees but look at his assumptions of how he's going to go about getting this healing and going to, to the God of Israel. Uh, verse 4, so Naaman went in and told his Lord. So he went, goes to the king of Syria and says, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So the first thing Naaman does, he gets a letter of recommendation from the most powerful person he knows. He's like, I got this letter from the king of, of Syria. This is like us having... You know, the U.S. president's signature on this letter. It's like, he's not going to turn me down. I'm going to take this to him, and he'll, he'll have to give me the healing. And then verse 6, look, look at what he does next. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Altogether, uh, so changes of clothing were a big deal back in the day. Like, we have a lot of changes of clothing, but they would might only have one or two. But he's got 10 that he's bringing along with him. Altogether, this is 600 years worth of wages for the average worker. So today, this would be something like $24 million that he's bringing with him to get this healing. It's a lot of money. And he's thinking, if this letter of recommendation doesn't work, I'll have pretty much all my money here that I can get by this healing from the person. I'll leverage all my resources. And thirdly, he decides, I'm going to go to the most powerful man in Israel. Uh, the king, uh, rather than, she mentioned this prophet in Samaria, doesn't sound good. I'm going to go to the king of Israel, and he's going to give me this healing. Uh, but the thing was, the king of Israel, King Joram, uh, was one of the many idolatrous, uh, selfish, bad kings that are described in this book. And he gets the letter, and he freaks out. His only connection, this king's only connection to God is really by name, that he's the king of Israel. Uh, he doesn't believe God can do any healing, has no real power from God. Uh, and so he panics thinking that Syria wants to have a war with them. And so he's gonna, they're trying to find a way to, to have an, uh, a grievance with them. And so, uh, so he immediately, the most powerful man in Israel that Naaman assumes is gonna be the greatest man who can get him this thing, uh, is, is, is powerless before God, not great at all for himself. So Elisha, the, pro, the actual prophet, hears that the king has torn his clothes and gone into mourning over the situation. And he, and he reaches out to the king and says, send Naaman here to me. And then look at verse 9. Naaman came with his horses and chariots. 
and gives money. He's got his letter. And now he's also got horses and chariots. He's, got, he's like, I'm going to bring all my boys with me and all of our weapons. And we're going to show up at this guy's house, which I imagine Elisha's house is like a one-room mud shack. You know, just like the most humble thing. And Naaman's got all of his stuff out front. Uh, thinking with all these things, letters, money, it's his chariots. Uh, and then look what happens in verse 10. Elisha doesn't even come out to see any of it. He sends a messenger uh, out to Naaman. Says, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. Elisha doesn't see the letter with the king's name on it. Uh, doesn't, take any, doesn't see or take any of the money. Doesn't inspect any of the chariots or the horses. Uh, rather, he's like, I'm a little busy. Who was it you said? Naaman? Oh, Naaman? Was it Siberian army? What was it? Oh, Syrian? Oh, yeah, just tell him to go take a bath in the Jordan. He'll be fine. <laughs> Everything that Naaman had to contribute was totally irrelevant to God's prophet, Elisha. Doesn't even look at any of it. Doesn't acknowledge it. And how does this cause Naaman to respond? Predictably, it says, verse 11, Naaman was angry and went away saying, this is his assumption, behold, I thought he would surely come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hand over all the place and cure the leper. And then he says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. So Naaman here almost misses the true way to God entirely because he assumes that the way to God is through big displays of power, the biggest, best rivers, through money, through kings, through chariots. And this whole story is about every assumption Naaman has is totally wrong. The way to God in this story is through a poor little servant girl, through the insignificant nation of Israel, through a messenger of a poor prophet, the small, dirty Jordan River, and simply taking a bath. But again, when Naaman almost misses it, who saves the day in this story? Who is truly great? Naaman's servants step in again. They're God's tool, and they see more clearly than he does, and they say, my father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? And Naaman, to his, to his credit, actually listens to these servants here, which would be a very, very humbling thing to do for how great of a guy he was. And he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. So Naaman here is healed, but more than healed, his skin turns into that of a little kid. And with this word in Hebrew, little child, the author is making a pun, a play on words, that points back to the, the name of the little servant girl. And the author is saying, Naaman becomes like the little servant girl when he comes out of the water. He turns into a child. So in this story, what's the right way to get to God? Naaman assumes the way to God is through human exertion, pride, and power. And he learns that the true way to God is through humility. Humility is something the little servant girl had, something Elisha had, something that Naaman's later servants had, but Naaman lacked until the very end when he literally turns into a child. When Jesus walked around on the earth, his disciples were arguing about who was the greatest among them. A very Naaman kind of thing to do. 
And Jesus looked around and saw a little child and said something like, little servant girl, come over here. And he said to his disciples, if you don't become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, the greatest among you is the one who humbles himself like this little child. And Naaman in our story physically, literally becomes like a child. His skin is a picture of what happened more importantly to his heart. As he washed seven times in that river, this great man was humbled. And it was the only way to God. And the story suggests that for us too, humility is an essential part of your way to true intimacy with God. It's essential. Let me explain how Naaman was humbled in this story. He was humbled in three ways, and we too must be humbled in these same ways to be able to meet God. First, his eyes were humbled. Naaman had proud, worldly eyes that were often too blind to see what was really important in God's eyes. So blind Naaman thought that Israel's king was the the only one with the real power, so I'm going to go to this king. He was blind to see Elisha. He also thought that Naaman was, he saw Naaman as too important, too powerful to listen to the messenger of Elisha. So I'm not going to go wash in the river of, of, of Israel. And in both cases, his blindness caused him to almost miss God entirely as a result. And so like Naaman, we need new eyes. We need humble eyes with upside down glasses uh, that can see God as he is. The upside-down glasses that we, that we should put on would see uh, through our worldly greatness, would see through your income, your job title, your accomplishments, your good looks, your popularity, see through all that stuff as something that doesn't matter in the slightest to God. And what's left after that is you would see a helpless little child with a first name, Sam, Sarah. That is who we are before God who we truly are inside, and who we must become in our own eyes if we have any hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. And so I wonder, are you able to see past your accomplishments and to see your inner child, like, like the helplessness, the, the needs the size of the ocean, the paralyzing fears, the longing to be held by God your Father? Can you see that in yourself? Look to the person beside you. Can you see the child in them too? We need humble eyes and we can't enter the kingdom of heaven without them. Second thing Naaman needed was humble hands. Naaman's prideful hands brought $24 million to pay Israel's God for services. Naaman's hands literally carried the assumption that he could earn his way to God. He even tries to pay Elisha after the healing, and Elisha refuses to take the money. Why? Uh, Moms, this is like your kid trying to give you 25 cents a quarter for birthing them and raising them. Uh, You're saying, no, I won't accept it. First of all, it's not enough. It's not even close. Uh, Just for the birthing process alone, it would be maybe $100,000. But more importantly, I won't take it because it misunderstands the whole relationship. This is a gift. It's free. I did it because I love you, not to make money off of you. Naaman needed baby hands. Humble hands. Helpless beggar hands. 
that could receive a free gift that he could never pay back. And those are the hands that you too need for intimacy with God. As long as you're trying to merit God's love with churchy activities, long prayers, self-beatings, sinless streaks, as long as we're trying to earn God's love with those things, we will never have intimacy with the true God because he loves us free of charge. And we live out his ways not to make him love us, but because he already does love us. So name it needed humble hands to receive that free gift. And lastly, Naaman needed humble feet. Naaman's feet thought it was dumb to walk to the dirty, small Jordan River and wash seven times, and he almost didn't do it. He would have walked right back to a life of pride and leprosy that would kill him one day. And he would have missed God. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. To get to God, to get to intimacy with God, our feet must walk in God's ways. No matter how few other people are walking in those ways around you, no matter how old or windy or counterintuitive that path seems to your modern eyes. And this is incredibly humbling. Because if you really do this, it means you're not the main navigator of your life anymore. You're following Jesus on a path. He's not following you. In every book and command of scripture, his word is a step on that path. And if we are really following him, if we're humbling ourselves like Naaman finally does in the end, it means we cannot pick and choose which steps we're going to take. I'll do this one, but I don't agree with that one. It doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm going to wash in my river instead, God. Yours is outdated. I'm going this way. To the Bible, any step off that path takes us to a totally different destination, to a God that's not real, that we made up ourselves. And Jesus is over here. Thankfully, we can retrace our steps back to this path and get going again the right way. But to walk it, we need humble feet that are willing to walk in his steps and not in our own. So what's the right way to get to God? The story suggests it's the way of humility. Having humble eyes, humble hands, humble feet. That's how we become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. But you might be wondering, Harrison, doesn't this assume that we have the right God? Thinking about the Islam story that we, we told earlier, uh, this is the way to get to the God of Israel, but how do we know that he is the right God, the one true God? And this leads us to our second question. Is the God of the Bible the one true God? So remember Naaman was a man of Syria, not of Israel. He followed other gods. Uh, though he had a lot going on for him, he had one massive lingering issue. He was a leper. And leprosy at this time was some sort of infectious skin disease that would make his face, his hands, his body look heinous. They would itch and hurt constantly. There's no creams you can put on him to make him feel better at this time. No cover-up. And others would not want to get close to Naaman or touch him. This isn't a powerful, important person who had this, this disease. It was a sickness that would totally define his life. We see here he is desperate and would do pretty much anything to get rid of it, including listen to a religion of an army that he just probably conquered from the mouth of a little girl who's a servant of his wife. And in his desperation, he takes all of his money to go and get that thing, to go out and search for this God. And how does it turn out for him? 
He ends up obeying these crazy instructions to go wash seven times in this random river. And after the seventh humiliating wash, he comes out of the water and his skin changes. The redness and the pain and the itching goes away. It disappears and in its place is the skin of a little child. Which adult skin, as many of you know, is, is flaky, dry. Uh, but, but little kid's skin is amazing. He has the brand new skin, the best skin. Can you imagine what it would have felt like for him to run his hand over his arm after coming out of that, that, that river of having this horrible skin his whole life and now having perfect skin? And then how does he react? Look at verse 15. He returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, comes before Elisha, and he says, Behold, I know there is no other God in all the earth but in Israel. And then in verse 17, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God, but to the Lord. So this healing experience for Naaman changes his worldview. It's like the scales fall off from his eyes and he realizes the God of Israel actually exists. And more than that, he exists exclusively. He's the only true God. And Naaman commits to worshiping him alone. He even asked afterwards to be forgiven because his job required him to go into the worship of Ramon, this other God. He had to go and attend to the king while the king worshiped. And so he says, I'm not going to worship that guy, but please forgive me just for showing up there. And Elisha says, you're forgiven, go in peace. So going back to our question, is the God of Israel the true God? Naaman starts the story saying no, but ends the story saying yes. Why? He saw the God of Israel could do something that no other God, no other person could do. And that was heal Naaman of his deepest issue. It's one of the many answers 1 and 2 Kings gives to our question, is God the true God? The answer is, come and see. Come and see. Naaman couldn't just hear from the servant girl that the God of Israel could heal him. He couldn't just read about that God from afar. He had to, he had to go and take, it, take his deepest issue to that God. And not only that, he had to obey the God of Israel in regards to that issue, do something seemingly totally ridiculous to him, wash seven times in the Jordan River. He had to do that to experience healing and reach the conclusion that there is one God, and it's this God, no others. Come and see. It's as if there's many medications out there that we could take as humans for our biggest needs in our lives. And the servant girl says, it's not that one over there, that ball uh, medication, ball prozole. It's not, it's not over there, the, uh, you know, the, uh, what's, what is that, you know, Muhammad medication. Uh, it's, it's that one right there. It's, it's the Yahweh pill. Yeah, that's the one. I've taken it. Yeah, it works. It makes you all better. Yeah, take that one. Now, with a serious pill, before you take it, you might, you know, want to read the results of some trials, get advice from a doctor, get a testimony from a friend, check side effects. But ultimately, Second Kings argues that you won't know its effect on you until you swallow it. Let it dissolve in your stomach and see what happens. The same is true of the matters of Christianity. You have to try it out. You have to try obeying God, try talking to him, try reading his word to know if he is real. For Naaman, it was because of his leprosy that he was so desperate. And that's what led him to actually take the pill. And I wonder... For you, whether Christian or not, are you by chance as desperate as Naaman? Though maybe like him, you're influential. You have a, a job with a fancy title. You've got some money in your bank account. 
Do you have a leprosy that clings to you and eats away at your life? Do you have something that you can't get rid of on your own that hurts you deeply? Maybe like Naaman, this is a physical illness or a mental illness like cancer or depression that has totally defined your life. Perhaps it's an illness of the soul, addiction to unhealthy relationships, overwhelming shame, an embittered feud with your parent or spouse, persistent selfishness, stingy greed, rage that physically and emotionally hurts those around you, envy of others' lives, pride that thinks you're the best person in this room right now. Most of us, to various degrees, have every single one of those issues. Why? The leprosy we are born into is called sin. And it infects every part of your lives, and it will kill you. So let me ask you this, Christian or not, what pills did you take this past week for that leprosy? There's a lot of medications out there claiming to meet your deepest needs, to heal our sin. It could be a self-help book, calls for hard work pill four times a day, follow this Famous billionaire's plan, wake up at 5 a.m. each morning and over time your shame and weakness will go away because you will be enough, a person that matters to this world. Or maybe it was a, a romance novel that said, take this love pill four times on the weekends, day and night, and you will find the right person, your soulmate, and you will be whole for the first time in your life. It's a finance book that says it's the money pill. Get a huge bottle, many years supply, this massive pill, save up all your money, build storehouses of grain, and your anxieties about the future, the greed, the envy, all these problems when you wake up to forget about your leprosy and your shame. What pill is in your medicine cabinet right now? The Book of Kings would argue the question we should ask is this, which pill actually cures your leprosy? Which heals your deepest afflictions truly? And God says, take my pill. Taste and see that I am good. Swallow me whole. The pill is a capsule filled with blood, actually. The blood of God's only son. Who was abandoned and tortured and killed in your place. And the blood has power to wash you clean, to bring you to life. To make you brand new. And enable you to walk the path to God. And to finally meet God at the last day. So whether you're Christian or not, try that pill today. Go to Jesus with nothing, as a child with only a first name, in desperation with your deepest needs, begging him to be healed. Search his word for answers. Wait minute to minute for a response from God. Risk it on God and see what happens. Put down some of those other pill bottles that you know are just placebos or worse, are things that are killing you and pick up God's. You can even try on obedience to a command of God. Treat somebody exactly the way that you would want to be treated. Give away something sacrificially. Forgive an enemy and hug them. See what happens. And what you will find is a medication not like morphine that numbs, but more like chemotherapy that kills off the cancerous evil in you while simultaneously bringing to life the true part of you that's finally getting free from that evil for the first time. And God's medication will save your life in this world and in the next world. Come and see. So what's the right way to God? Humility. Humility of the eyes, hands, and feet. Is the God of the Bible the true God? The servant girl invites you and says, go find out. He longs to show you. Let's pray. Father, we um, praise you, Lord, for this story and the reminder, Lord, that, um, that you are 
the one true God. And Lord, we don't have to just come up with some argument to get there, but we can actually come and taste and see that from you directly. Um, And Lord, I pray for those in here that are wondering that question. Uh, Lord, would you give them your spirit to have the courage to come to you and not like Naaman, bringing all their, their best foot forward and all their money and energy and time that they think they can earn your, their way to you, Lord, but would they come like the little servant girl with nothing? Um, and Lord, will we all be able to sit at your feet and just receive the free gift of your love? Um, Lord, would you, would you make that happen for us this week? And Lord, would you meet people as they try you on, as they take that pill, Lord? Would you meet us in that and help us to, to see like Naaman, Lord, you are the one true God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.